Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm bringing back one of the podcast's most popular episodes about one of the most requested topics, Montessori with toddlers. On episode 15 of the Multilingual Montessori podcast, which originally aired on February 2nd, 2022, I spoke with Claudia Lundahl, an AMI Montessori 0-3 to guide, postpartum doula, and freelance artist living in London, England. One of Claudia's first teaching experiences after college was teaching English in France through TAPIF, which stands for Teaching Assistant Program in France, where she taught English to French middle schoolers in a town along the Swiss border near Geneva. Claudia then discovered Montessori, and we talked about her experiences as a toddler guide, including what developmental work happens in a Montessori toddler classroom, and what it's like to be an early childhood educator and not be a parent. Claudia also shared her experiences as a postpartum doula and why she finds that work aligns very well with Montessori principles. She also talked about starting an English immersion Montessori homeschool class in London with a French family during the first summer of the pandemic. A few months after this interview, I invited Claudia back on the podcast to interview me about my own journey to Montessori education and to starting this podcast. It's episode 20 called How Multilingual Montessori Came to Be, and you can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Claudia is a font of knowledge about toddlers and Montessori, and I think you'll learn a lot from her whether or not you have a toddler in your life. Here's my conversation with Claudia. Hi, Claudia. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, To start out, tell us a bit about yourself who you are, where you live, and what you do. Sure. Um, My name is Claudia Lundahl. I am a Montessori-trained educator, a freelance educational consultant, and a visual artist. And I currently live in London, England. And okay, so we met in New York when we were working at a Montessori school together. So um, tell me about how you first got into education and about your early teaching experiences? Sure. So um, it's been kind of a winding journey for me, but um, in college, I studied English literature and French literature. And after graduation, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. Um, But both my parents are teachers. So I thought, you know, maybe teaching is going to be the pathway for me too. And I'd always worked with kids um, throughout college, nannying, and I've always really liked working with children in any capacity. So I applied for my first teaching position through the teaching assistant program in France, um, which is uh, the acronym spells TAPIF. So um, TAPIF is a really wonderful program that pairs teachers with schools in different areas around France. And I was lucky enough to be offered a position. So I started teaching ESL um, in France with middle school students and I just loved it. I fell in love with teaching and the bilingual aspect was great. But um, yeah, I, I did that for one year and that was my introduction to education. Um, And what, uh, how was your level of French when you were living in France? Were you fluent? Not even close. No, (laughs) I studied it, um, you know, for four years of school and you graduate thinking that you've got a pretty good handle on it. And then I'm sure you had a similar experience. um, Yeah. For Fulbright. Um, But Yeah, so I I definitely was faced with a lot of challenges at first, Um, just the the fundamental aspects of setting up a life in a different country and being alone. There 
are elements of language that you would just not cover in a college classroom, such as setting up a bank account and renting an apartment and buying furniture. Um, so navigating all of that was was pretty pretty challenging. And I'm I'm dating myself here, but I, you know, this was before iPhones. Like there was yeah. no Google Translate available with just like a button. It was all very like context clues and sort of figuring out what how to say what I wanted to say with the language I already had. So it was a huge, huge growth experience for me. Um, and where in France were you? I was in St. Julien en Genevois, which is a very, very small town um, right outside of Geneva. So on the Swiss border, basically on customs. So um, Geneva was my closest city, which is a very beautiful area of, of France and Switzerland. I was really lucky. Ah. Uh. That sounds amazing. I've never been to Switzerland or that part of France, but hopefully someday. Um, so probably not a lot of English spoken in that town, right? Not a ton, not a ton. Um, there were a few, a very few English expats um, that I was really lucky to connect with while I was there, but uh, it was it was pretty challenging and you're just kind of thrust right into it um, without a lot of, you know, people help you, but will only help you so much. And that's fine. You know, that was how I learned the language um, to the degree that I've learned it now. But yeah, it was it was pretty tough at first. There were definitely some moments where I was like out of my depth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember feeling that too when I lived in Italy for my Fulbright. Like I had studied Italian for four years in college and I was like, oh, I'm fluent in Italian. <laughs> then I moved to Sicily and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and then the <laughs> accent too, the accent too was hard for me. I don't know. Was the accent in that part of France different from what you had been exposed to in your classrooms? There were things that were different. It's it's pretty similar. I don't, I don't think it's very far off from like a Parisian French or like a textbook French. It wasn't, it was just more like the speed um, that people were talking was just really, really fast. And then there was a whole level of like slang and colloquialism and things like that, that are natural for people who live there that just com went completely over my head, especially working with middle school students who are like 12 through 17 were just talking in like basically backwards French and were like trying to explain it to me but I was like oh I feel so old and I'm not sure what's happening uh, <laughs> but it was fun. um so tell me more about working with the middle schoolers what um what sort of lessons did you do with them what did you like about working with that age group yeah that was unexpected I I wasn't sure I wanted to work with very young children at this point in my life, um, which is funny considering what I ended up doing. I just kind of kept going younger and younger. Um, but uh, middle school was really unexpected and I wasn't really sure what to expect because I'd done my teaching experience um, in undergrad in high school. So this was like a, a middle ground that I just had no experience with, um, but they were great. They were such lovely kids and they just, wanted to learn and learn English well. And typically the um, teachers they get are British. So to have an American come in, I think was really, um, really exciting for them, especially someone from New York. They just wanted to hear all about like, what's New York like? And they had all these ideas about what it was like. And, um, you know, very like romantic and exciting and kind of um, just really wanted to hear all about it. So it was great. They were really, really excited and receptive. And um, a lot of the lessons that I put together, it, it had to be designed to meet the students where they were. And there was a very broad um, scope of familiarity with English in the classroom. So I had students that um, some of them had one English parent and they were like ready to go and wanted more. And then I had students who just really had no experience with English and were starting from a very basic level and kind of just wanted to do the bare minimum. It wasn't like their strength subject or something like that. So 
for me, the biggest challenge was putting together um, lesson plans and a curriculum that worked for everybody and would keep everyone engaged, um, which was challenging at first. But I think the thing that really made a difference was making sure everyone had fun and making sure that we were doing things that catered to their interests. So it was learning about them, letting them tell me about themselves, and then sort of designing things that I thought would be fun for them. Like we did a lesson on American diner food and you know Thanksgiving because they don't have that there. So even though some of the language was more basic, it was still really fun for them. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And so what did you find thinking back on that year? What did you find most fulfilling about living in France, whether teaching or just being in another country? I think the most fulfilling thing for me was, um, well, there are a couple of facets, I guess, but for me on a personal level, it was very much um, like a confidence boosting thing to know that I had done it. And while it was really, really hard, I didn't give up and I just kept going and sort of made, made it work and made lots of friends and people that I'm still in touch with. So that was really great. And then just also realizing that I love teaching and it's what I want to do with my life. And where I was unsure about that before going into it, it was just kind of a, a way to exercise my own language skills. I realized how much I loved it and how fulfilling and rewarding it was. So it was a good introduction to what would eventually become my career. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good transition. Um, so you come back from France and then how do you find out about Montessori? So Montessori came into my life just totally like a universal gift because I had no idea what Montessori was. I didn't seek it out. I think I'd known a couple of people that had been Montessori kids, but I never really knew what that meant. Um, so it was just by chance that I came back to New York and was looking for positions in schools and they were building the most gorgeous Montessori school um, down the street from my then apartment. And I saw the building and I thought, this is gorgeous. It's so beautiful. It was almost finished. It had this great big glass atrium and it was just so beautiful. And that was something I hadn't seen because in, in France, the schools, I worked in um, two different schools in France actually, but always middle school. Um, but both of the schools were designed with a strong emphasis on environment. So they were like, the classrooms were laid out in a way that every classroom had sunlight and it was just very beautiful and like, aesthetically nice to, you know, courtyards. And it was just nice to be in the building itself. And um, that was something I hadn't seen so much of since coming back to New York. So um, it started with me just wondering like, wow, what is this? And researching and realizing like, this sounds really cool. I, I dig this. This sounds like something that I could really get into. So um, I applied for a position and was fortuitously offered an assistant position at this brand new school that was being built. And I started in September. Um, did you choose to work with toddlers or was that the position that they had open and you decided to take it? That was the position that they had open. Um, it worked out. I, my previous experience before going to France, I'd been a nanny for, um, a family with toddlers. So uh, I'm not sure if it was like, this seems like a better fit for you, or if this is what we have opens. I can't totally remember how the, how the interview went and, and what the um, situation was exactly. But yeah, um, I was placed in the toddler environment. And how did you feel um, about working with toddlers? Were you excited or were you a little uh, apprehensive? I was nervous. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, being a nanny, I worked with two children and that was fine, but you know, there were going to be 12 of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I 
wanted to go into it with a completely open mind and I was really excited, but I didn't really know what to expect. So tell me about your first year or anything that you remember from those very early experiences in the Montessori toddler room. Remember being tired all the time. But it was great. It was such a learning experience. I was really lucky. Um, The first guide I worked with, I was her assistant and she was really wonderful. She had been doing it for many, many years. Her parents own a Montessori school. So she just embodied Montessori and she was also so joyful and energetic and calm in the face of crisis. It really showed me it gave me a really strong example of what a Montessori guide, what their role is. So I felt, um, I felt really lucky to be learning from her. And I also realized that I had so much learning to do myself because it's a different story when you're in there with so many children than, you know, when you're one-on-one or two-to-one. So I realized you know, a lot of things that I needed to do to, to make my job easier and, and better going forward for everyone. And so when did you decide to start teacher training? Was that during your first year? And what made you decide to do the Montessori training? Yeah, during my first year, um, I, I pretty much knew that this was what I wanted to do. It was hard. It was so hard the first year just abundant challenges, um, for sure. But at the same time, it was so rewarding and so fun and every day was different. And I was learning and I was feeling inspired by the kids and enthusiastic about being a part of their growth journey. So I pretty much knew that I wanted to do it. And the teachers that I was working with my, my coworkers were so enthusiastic about their experience, having gone through teacher training, they were all very adamant that it was, you know, this life-changing experience and so great. And you make these really wonderful friendships and connections and mentorships. And so I just kind of thought like, it would be great to, to go through that journey and, and see how I came out on the other side. So I decided to go out to Portland, Oregon and do my training at Montessori Northwest under Nancy Lechner. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. One of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, So tell me a little bit about training. And then um, if if any of your ideas about Montessori or toddlers changed after your first summer of training. And what that was like going back to the classroom after that. Yeah, definitely. I, I love training. I love Portland, Oregon. I love the city. I loved everything about being there and the friends I made and, and the mentorships with the trainers were amazing. It was fantastic. I felt very lucky that I'd already been working in a school, um, when I went to training because There were a lot of things that were very situational that I felt I understood better because I had already been working um, in a school and kind of had that hands-on experience and knew the questions I wanted to ask or it it just gave everything a lot of context um, for sure. And I think the biggest thing that... I learned about toddlers, you know, during training and certainly after training is just that the world isn't always set up for them to be successful. So the gift of Montessori is really just so invaluable because that's what we're giving them as Montessori guides. It's, it's a world that is set up for them and they want to be happy. They want to succeed. And essentially all they need is time and patience and preparation. And, um, you know, it's, it's a basic thing, but it's not always given to them and it makes it 
really hard to operate when they're constantly being rushed or not given the opportunity to do something that they want to do themselves. And I think it's something that parents want to help and teachers want to help. And that's great. And of course, there are moments when help and assistance are welcome and necessary. But giving children time to problem solve and figure things out for themselves and operate independently fills them with the most satisfying sense of accomplishment. And I think sometimes parents and teachers and other adults don't realize that or don't emphasize it. And so I think you know, going through training, I looked back on the way I am with children and I thought, oh, I could have done this differently or, you know, next time I'll try this or, you know, it just gave me a way to, to look inward at how I am and realize that there's other ways uh, of being kind of. And so, um, yeah, definitely. It, it totally changed my perspective. And, um, you know, I never looked back. It's once you sort of have gone through the training and have worked in schools and have gained the expertise, um, it really just makes such a big difference and it makes everything so much more joyful. So tell me a little more about what happens in the toddler classroom. I think that a lot of people, um, maybe who aren't parents or unfamiliar with Montessori, tend to think of school for one, two, three-year-olds as daycare or just playtime. Um, so tell me what kind of developmental work happens in the Montessori toddler classroom. Sure, yeah. There is so much that goes on in the Montessori classroom. It's so vast. Um, there's just so much learning that takes place in every facet of our curriculum. So even things that aren't activities are still learning experiences at, at the toddler level because of the, you know, the absorbent mind we talk about in Montessori, how children are like sponges, they're soaking everything up. So pretty much every moment of the day is a learning experience, whether it's the language you're using to speak with them or the way you're speaking with them, taking off shoes, um, putting coats away, just from the moment they step in the door, they're learning and growing and doing something that makes them feel happy and complete and satisfied and, and achieved. So really, you know, there are activities, of course we have, a curriculum with activities that are designed for to target specific developmental milestones, whether it's fine motor skills or language development or gross motor skills, math, there, there is a curriculum. But the amazing thing about the toddler classroom is that it's all just building their world. And a lot of it, there is a lot of play that happens. And that's, how they learn best. So someone who's observing a toddler classroom might think, you know, oh, they're having so much fun playing and, you know, are they really learning? It's like, yes, you know, we're giving them the tools to, to like be discussed, like they're learning in disguise almost, which is really fun because they're, they love what they're doing. Um, and they're really having fun with it. And that sort of ties into the whole Montessori ethos of you're creating your you're help, you're helping a child create a desire to learn. So they'll go through the next phase of their academic life being an enthusiastic learner. And that starts in the toddler classroom because they're not, they're given the time to work on any specific thing that they want to work with for as long as they want to work with it. They have the support of their peers. They have the support of the guides in the classroom. And they're just in a very secure, supportive, loving environment that you know they feel is like their second home. And so 
they might be doing something that's technically part of the math curriculum, but they're just having a blast doing it. And that's one of the most fun things to observe as a guide. Um, so if parents are considering uh, Montessori toddler programs or looking for programs, what would you tell them to look for? What are some um, things that you might see or might not see when touring programs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as an educational consultant over the past couple of months, I've answered this question a few times, a few different ways. Definitely, my biggest thing is looking at how the program is credentialed. You definitely want that um, AMI, or if you're in the United States, the AMS credential that tells you that all of the teachers have been through a Montessori training program. Um, all of the guides, I should say. But that's one of my biggest things, just because the Montessori name isn't trademarked, anyone can sort of use it, and you never know what you're going to get. So you want to make sure that you're getting an actual Montessori program. Then from there, I would just say, you know, keep, keep your eye on how the classroom looks from an aesthetic perspective. Um, Overstimulating environments are probably a red flag that you want to look out for. Children don't learn well when they're overstimulated. And so if a room is really cluttered or there's too much decoration or there's too much going on, I would say that's um, a red flag making sure that all of the furniture is child height and accessible, that the room really looks like it's designed for a child, like a miniature world. If it looks like an adult room with child-sized tables and chairs in it, it's not probably a great Montessori classroom. Um, there's a lot that you know goes into designing a Montessori space and um, it really should be designed for them. So those are probably my, my top things. Yeah, that's great. What would you say? Am I missing anything? What, like um, no, I think, I think you covered it. Uh, the only other thing I would say is that if you are given an opportunity to observe in the classroom, to see what the noise level is, that's always a good um, indicator of a, a calm Montessori program. If, you know, even in a room of 12, two-year-olds, you know, of course, like they're going to be talking and might be crying or whatever, but especially looking to the guides to see what their noise level is, how they talk to the children, if they get down on their level, um, if they move around the classroom slowly, those kinds of things, I think are also an indicator of the, of the quality of the program. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I would definitely echo that. I think listening to how the guides talk with the children and definitely the, you know, how they speak to them getting down on their level. Definitely. Yeah. Add that to my list too. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So one thing I really wanted to talk with you about is um, you and I both work in the field of early childhood education, but we are not parents. And although we don't have our own children at home, we've worked with dozens, probably hundreds of children over the years. This is a topic that I've thought a lot about and that comes up a lot as a childless person working with children and their parents. So I'd love to hear from your perspective um, what your experiences have been like working with young children and their parents, being an expert in early childhood development, um, but not having children yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, my perspective has always been that. I'm not a substitute parent as a Montessori guide. My role is totally different. Um, so it's really just a matter of being an expert in my field, which I think having gone through the Montessori training, which is rigorous, I mean, you know, <laughs> um, and anyone who's gone through training or has heard about training knows how rigorous it is. And then going through a master's in education program and working in the classroom for so many years, 
I feel confident that I can address a multitude of situations with the breadth of knowledge that qualifies me as an expert. And I always just sort of think about a mother is a different thing. A mother is, it's not that I'm not nurturing or comforting or mother-like in the classroom. I think, you know, to work with toddlers, especially you have to be very close to them and you have to be very nurturing. Um, and I'll always be that. But at the same time, my role is very different. And I think that benefits me as a guide in a lot of ways. Um, and I also just think my perspective is based on so many different experiences. It's cumulative of my years of training and teaching and seeing so many different children come through my classroom. So really being a guide puts me in a really great place to address developmental milestones and child behaviors and to look at them from a lens of having the, the background information that I'm sure so many parents wish they have access to and, and can have access to, of course. And, and that's why we work collaboratively and that's why the work that we do is so intimate. But at the same time, um, I'm bringing something different to the situation. And a lot of times parents tell me, oh, they're so different in school. They're so different at home. Like they're so different with me. Um, and of course that's the case. The, the school isn't the home and, and it really shouldn't be. It should, it should maybe feel like a second home. They should be very comfortable there. Um, but no, if, if children, you know, if I wanted to be their mother or if they thought that I wanted to be their mother, that would set up a very strange dynamic in the classroom. Um, so I think, you know, um, yeah, I'm a Montessori guide and I don't have the experience of being a parent, but I don't think that makes me any less qualified or any less competent as an expert in my field, just like anyone else who's an expert in their field. They've gone through all of the, the necessary steps to, to achieve what they've achieved. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I fully agree. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so tell me what advice would you give to someone who is considering doing the zero to three training for Montessori? What would you tell them? What advice would I give someone? Um, I think go for it. I mean, if they're interested in it, I would think that, you know, they, they've worked with children or have an interest in working with children and know a little bit about the Montessori method. I would say the most important thing to remember is that it's a joyful experience. Training can be extraordinarily overwhelming. And I think there are moments in everyone's training journey where they're kind of overwhelmed and inundated with the, with the work that's involved in that um, process. But um, it's a joyful experience and having that experience and meeting yourself in a place of feeling confident that you'll take the knowledge that you learn and go out into the world and make a difference in children's lives. Um, you just have to introduce like a sort of levity into the situation and know that, that it's really good work. It's really important work and it's, it's really valuable. So the, the contribution that you'll make to the world is just, um, is just really amazing after going through it. So yes, everyone who's interested should go do it. Um, it will be hard, but it will be worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, um, what would you say? Do you have any advice? What, what would be your answer? I'm curious. Um, well, so one thing that I think is very different for the zero to three training that you did and the three to six training that I did is that the observation hours are very different. So when you do three to six, it's all um, happening in a school setting. Right. So you're always in a children's house classroom. In my training, we did observation and teaching practice in three different classrooms. Um, 
So that was really cool, but it wasn't difficult to find children to observe. But I remember hearing from guides that did the zero to three training that you have to observe an infant that's under like four or six weeks, right? And like, even just finding that infant um, is, can be challenging. And I think it's also, um, I remember my neighbor um, had a baby and I convinced her to let me bring this baby um, into uh, the training center in New York for the teachers in training to observe. And the dad was there and I was there. The mom was at work that day, so she couldn't come. But like the dad, I don't think I adequately prepared him for how awkward it was going to be for him to just be like sitting there with his baby, not talking. (laughs) And everybody was just writing notes, looking at this baby. So um, I guess that's not really advice, but that's like one thing that I think if people aren't familiar with Montessori or don't really know, like the observation part seems like such a huge um, aspect of the zero to three training. And I, I remember hearing people saying that it was like hard to find children, hard to, you know, accumulate all those hours. What would, what would you say about that? Having been through it? Yes, absolutely. I think um, it's good to go into training with a good um, sort of understanding of what the observation hours are like, because you're totally right. It's a very unique experience. And for people that aren't in Montessori with whom you're doing these hours, it can be very awkward. And it's, it's hard to explain like, yes, I'm coming over your house. I'll be there for five hours. I'm not going to help you. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to be engaging with you. I will be sitting here (laughs) watching your baby and recording its movements. And so (laughs) for sure, I think, um, it, it was definitely, and then also, you know, reaching out to, because you're totally spot on that it's tears. And so you have to do a certain number of hours with a baby under four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. I can't remember exactly how many, but it's up through school age. Um, so you have to observe in programs as well. So if you're not working in a school, you have to sort of approach programs and ask like, can I come sit in for the day? And Montessori schools will know, like they're very, everyone that I did it with was, was fine, but um, it is sort of an awkward request. And um, it very much depends, like a lot of schools don't want you or would prefer that you not do it in the beginning of the year. So you have to make sure you're timing your observations, but that you get them all done. So yeah, it's hard. And just making time for that. Also, if you're working in a school and you're working full time, you're going to be leaving your job and going to observation hours. There's no way around it. Like you can schedule them during your breaks and weekends, but you're going to really have to hustle to, to get those observation hours done. So that's a great point. Yeah. It's a big piece yeah. of it, but it's lovely and it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's a great experience, but it can be challenging. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, that's such a big part of it that I think is like important to be aware of and consider if you're thinking of training and if you have your own baby, can you use them for some of the hours? I can't remember. I think, I believe you can more importantly though, you can help out your, your classmates. So yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's a true. whole bunch of people over to watch your baby and everyone will love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure. I think you can use them for some of it, but definitely not not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So speaking of babies, um, switching gears a little bit from Montessori, tell me about what, um, what led the, led you to the decision to do the training, to become a postpartum doula and tell me about that work. Yeah, of course. So, um, I should have probably mentioned that when I introduced myself. I'm also a postpartum doula. (laughs) Um, And the main thing I've been working, I'd been working in Montessori classrooms for many years and children started in my program at 18 months, which seems really young. But what I learned from interacting and working, working really closely and intimately and collaboratively with parents during their child's first school experience, what became really evident to me um, fairly quickly was that parents need help sooner. And especially in a big city, um, before moving to London, I was New York City based and did 
my, my career was based in New York. Um, people come to New York and leave behind the traditional familial structures that would have supported them in the weeks, months, years after birth. And I think it's also fairly common in New York for both parents to be working and to have a rigorous career that they're trying to balance while also raising children. And so I would, you know, sit down with parents during parent teacher conferences and they would just open up and tell me, you know, this is the first time like I can enjoy my child because the first year and a half was so stressful of me just wondering, you know, what's going on? Is everything okay? Am I doing this right? Is is everything going well? Like, you know, you you go for your doctor's appointments and that's one thing, but to feel so stranded in the months after birth for 18 months sometimes where you're just totally adrift in this sea of not knowing what's going, not knowing how it's going and also not being able to fully take care of yourself because you're so consumed with taking care of your child. And, um, you know, that goes for partners as well. You know, partners are in the same boat where they are juggling so much and wanting to be supportive in all areas. And it's just a lot for, for a family to, to manage, um, on their own. And so, I decided to go for the postpartum doula training through, um, I did it with Birdsong Brooklyn at Carriage House Birth. And um, I loved it. Yeah, it was it was a really wonderful decision, a really great um, segue into supporting families um, from birth. Um, my clients, I would sometimes start working, you know, baby was born on Saturday, I would be there on Monday. And so it was like giving people a really, um, you know, it wasn't that I was like stepping in and being a nanny for this newborn baby. It's I'm supporting the family as a unit. So it's, it's infant care, but it's also maternal care, paternal care, familial care. It's the whole picture. Um, so that, that was really great. And I was doing that up until I moved to London in early 2020. Um, and did you ever have the opportunity, opportunity to sort of bring in Montessori infant principles along with that work and incorporate that? Yes, definitely. And that was so fun. Um, Being able to, you know, talk to parents before they've made furniture choices, like, oh, you should get this bookshelf because, you know, they'd be telling me where they're going to like tack the shelf to the wall. And I'm like, no, get the one that goes on the floor because they can get it themselves. And, um, you know, things like a movement mat and, um, all those little decisions that actually make so much sense because when you're thinking about an infant being in a room that they can grow into as they get older, Montessori is so compatible with, you know, having longevity in the environment you create for your child, especially in New York city where you're in a small space and you're maybe not wanting to be constantly changing things or, you know, ditching a crib for this or whatever. So it's, um, it was great to be able to talk to parents about those like environmental aspects. And then, yeah, I just think, um, you know, coming from a toddler classroom where children still napped um, for a small portion of the day, it was great to be able to work with parents on issues like sleep from, from infancy so that, you know, sleep wouldn't be an issue going forward. So it really, Montessori starts from birth. I mean, really it's, it's such a gift to be able to give your child Montessori from the time they're born, basically. I mean, and then as they work their way through, you know, if it's a program or it's a homeschool or whatever it is, integrating those little elements to, to make your child successful and to ensure that they're enthusiastic and curious people is, um, is really great. So yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, so if somebody is thinking of, um, hiring a postpartum doula, what, so a postpartum doula is different from somebody who's in the delivery room with you. Um, what should somebody be considering, uh, when they're looking for a postpartum doula? So again, similar to my answer with Montessori, the credential um, 
knowing which training they've gone through um, is a big aspect of that. And just because to get certified as a doula, there are certain things you have to do. So being affiliated with a training program is the most important thing. And then once you know where they've trained, you can do your background research, go onto that organization's website, make sure it checks out, see who the people are, what the vibe is, make sure it works really well with you. I would also say, do an interview, interview as many dual, like you don't need to hire the first postpartum dual that you meet with. You can reach out to people. They'll be more than happy to come meet with you, tell them, like they'll tell you about themselves and give you the background, what they do, what they offer. The thing about postpartum doulas is that, you know, everyone has something different in their bag of tricks. So some doulas prefer to cook and they'll make you meals all day. And if like, that's what your family needs, if it's, if food is your biggest concern, then you want someone that's going to go for that. Some doulas aren't as keen on cooking. And so if that's what you're looking for, you might want to go with someone else. It doesn't hurt to interview as many duels as you want. And if it seems like it's going to work out, then great. And if you end up not using a duel, that's fine too. But start early, start prenatally because postpartum duels get booked. So start really, really early, as early as you think that you, you know, the thought pops into your head that you might want a doula. And um, because it would be really hard to find someone that you love and they're not available. So since they can only work with one client at a time and sometimes the contracts, you know, can be up to a couple of months that they'll work with one family, it would be a shame to miss out. So book early, do your interviews. Um, find out who they are and um, definitely things like testimonials are great. Um, see if the doula has, they should have testimonials on their website. Um, if they're a new doula, they might not. You can always reach out to their training organization and ask, you know, how they were and that kind of thing. And yeah, do, do a little research and talk to people. That's the most important thing. Yeah. And so doulas typically, postpartum doulas typically work with a family for a couple months. Yeah, it's, it's depends what that doula schedule is like. If they're really, really busy, they might prefer to just do shorter, um, you know, weeks at a time, months is typical, but yeah, it really depends, but they can do, you know, up to a couple of months. I've done, mm -hmm. I think two months before. Um, some doulas also will work um, at night. So they'll be sort of like a night nurse. They're it's different from a night nurse. Postpartum doula isn't a night nurse. They're different qualifications, but some doulas do support families at night. And that's something that I've done as well. Um, so it just depends. Yeah. What, what the family is looking for. Oh, cool. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, and you know, of course, bonus, if they come with a Montessori certification as well, <laughs> there you go. The total package. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. So then you moved to London just a few months before COVID. So tell me about what, um, so you set up a French homeschool classroom in London, and I'm assuming that part of the reason for that was COVID. Um, but tell me about what that experience was like and what the setup was. Sure. Yeah. So we moved to London, um, six weeks before the first COVID lockdown. So <laughs> um, it was a whirlwind to say the least. And um, I wasn't really sure if I was going to be looking for a Montessori job, if I was going to sort of channel my career into more of the postpartum space. I didn't really know what my route was going to be. But then COVID happened and sort of decided for me, okay, going into a school is not going to be possible right now. Um, so I found an opportunity, Mo many children, I would say most schools were closed at this time. Um, and children are home and parents were, you know, understandably like, what am I going to do? My children are home. They're driving me crazy. I'm driving them crazy. Like there's just like a lot at play here. So I think a lot of people were in this boat where they just weren't sure what to do. So I, found an opportunity with a family who 
um, were French and their children had been in a Montessori program, but weren't able to go. So the family was really interested in continuing their Montessori education at home. And um, they advertised on the Association Montessori International website, which is how I found them. And I just introduced myself and said, you know, I'd love to help out with this. And it sounds really cool. And, you know, there's the bilingual element, which I love. So it was a good match. I helped them design a space in their home, which they had been renting out, but because of COVID, they weren't able to rent it out any longer. And so they had like a perfect classroom. Um, so I just built a materials list with them and sort of went through what we would need. And they ordered a lot of things and kind of like got us set up in this little Montessori, um, Montessori realm. And initially I wasn't going to teach. I was just going to help them set up, but I really liked the family, loved the kids. It was a lot of fun. Um, so I stayed on and taught from June to September and, um, then the kids went back to school. They went back to their Montessori program. So it was a nice little like Montessori summer camp. Um, I think, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun for them. It was certainly a lot of fun for me. And I think that they were really well positioned to go back into their program in September since they'd already been in the routine of sort of going to school for a couple of months. Yeah. And so how old were the kids during this time? So there was a 16 month old, a three year old and a six year old. So it wow. was, a, <laughs> it was a spectrum. Yeah, it was, um, it was challenging to create that, um, curriculum, but it was great. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, how much of your teaching with them was in French and how much was in English? So the goal, the parents wanted the children to speak English with me because, um, they spoke only French with their parents and other caretakers. Um, so they didn't want them to sort of lose the English, um, quote unquote, but so I was speaking with them in English but understanding the French was really, really helpful, <laughs> really yeah. paramount because in the beginning they were speaking, um, speaking mostly in French, Franklish kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was great. And I think, um, having the French really, because with language learning, I mean, as I'm sure, you know, husband said, but you're not correcting the child you're just stating. So I was just reinforcing. They would say the word to me in French. And since I knew what they were saying, I could reinforce and say yes, and then say the word in English so that, you know, the English was getting through and they were making that connection. You know, you never want to tell a child no, like if they're saying the right word, but just as they know it in their language, you know, if I don't understand what they're saying, it doesn't mean it's wrong, right? So understanding it was really, really great. Yeah. What did you notice about their language, um, their language use and um, understanding over the course of those few months with you? They definitely were speaking a lot more in English um, at the towards the end of my time with them. Um, the parents had told me that they spoke mostly in French, even in their program, they spoke mostly in French. So um, I think the one-on-one -on -one and the more personalized approach to doing, you know, a three-part lesson with language cards, I would do a lot with them. I think that really helped just the, the one-on-one -on -one. and, um, yeah, it was really great to, to hear them chatting away in English and sort of, you know, looking at their books and talking about their books in English or asking me a question in English about something really specific in the book, whereas, before, you know, they would ask me to read to them in French or, and they would just kind of tune out if I didn't read in French. So, um, yeah, it was fun. Sometimes I would pick up a French picture book and like translate it while I was reading it. And it was like, you know, just trying to make everybody happy, but towards the end, you know, it was really, it was really great to hear them, um, excel in, in their English skills. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Were they going on to a fully English school or a bilingual school or a French school in London? You know, I'm not sure. I have to, um, I have to jog my memory a bit. I think it was an English 
only school. I think yeah. it was just curly English. Yeah. Oh, that's so great that you were able to really set them, set them up for that. Okay. So I have one more question for you, but before I ask my last question, is there anything about Montessori or toddlers or language learning that I forgot to ask you about? No, I think we, um, we covered a lot of ground during this. This was yeah. really fun. I, um, yeah, I enjoy like revisiting these aspects of my own, my own journey. And, you know, obviously working on a sort of freelance um, basis, I've not been in the classroom for a while and not been in a traditional Montessori classroom. So revisiting all this stuff just always makes me feel so happy. Like I just, I love talking about Montessori. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't <laughs> think too. so. I think <laughs> this is great. Yeah. No, I, don't, I can't think of anything right now. Okay. Well, my last question is, um, what advice do you have for parents navigating the toddler years? Um, I was just texting with a friend that I did my three to six training with right now who has a two-year-old and even being a Montessorian, she's like, we're in the no phase and he doesn't want to do potty training. And so what, um, what advice in a, as you know, as I'm sure you could go on and on, but in a, in a brief ish way, what advice do you have for parents navigating the toddler years? Mm, this is a good one. I think the most important thing to remember is that toddlers want to be happy and they really aren't trying to seek out opportunities to be adversary or <laughs> be, you know, I've heard the people say, you know, manipulative kind of thing, but toddlers want to be happy. And as long as they're set up um, to succeed, then it's fairly easy to get back on track, even if things seem like they're taking a really hard turn. And that's not to say every problem has a magic solution or every behavior has an obvious cause. Um, I think I would just say, do your best to prepare toddlers for new situations give them time to adjust to new situations, give them time in general, and um, let them try things on their own and listen to them. I think that's the biggest thing to um, just get really good at holding space for them. I know that term is sort of thrown around a lot these days and has sort of like lost its value in certain situations, but I do think that holding space for children is really important and letting them work through their feelings um, about the experiences that they're taking in. Um, it can be very overwhelming. And so they might need to work through that a little bit more or in a different way than adults would. So, so I think just adjusting your behavior so that you're I think, I think as a parent and, and a guide, it's very natural to want to problem solve every situation. And you almost get like, like frantic about like making the child feel better or like fixing the situation or trying to make it right so that you don't cause a scene or, or whatever it is. And that can sort of escalate a situation with a toddler who is trying to regulate themselves anyway. And then there's this new factor, which is that the parent is freaked out or you know, their teacher is freaked out. And so just keeping that in mind that they're taking in so much and they're trying their best and there are so many things working against them at every moment um, is really important. So there will be really hard days and there will be things that happen that you don't know how to fix and that's okay. Um, toddlers are also very forgiving and they're very resilient in a lot of ways. So, you know, the next day will be better. And every day is an opportunity to start again fresh. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you, Claudia. This was wonderful. I'm so glad we got the chance to chat today. Thank you, Gabrielle. Yeah, this was really fun. I, I love doing this.
Thank you again to Claudia for joining me for this conversation. If you want to hear more from Claudia, take a listen to episode 20 of the podcast, where Claudia interviewed me about my own Montessori journey and how I decided to start this podcast. You can also find Claudia on her website, claudianlundahl.com, and on Instagram at Claude Lundahl. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.